Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event to discuss how the government can build a green recovery. I'm Gemma Tetlow, the IFG's Chief Economist. The Prime Minister says a green recovery will be at the heart of the UK's post-pandemic comeback, but his government has so far set out less ambitious measures than some other countries and it cancelled its flagship scheme, the Green Homes Grant, after six months due to low take-up. With the UK hosting COP26 climate conference in November, I'm delighted we can all be here to, today to discuss what combination of policies, public and private investment and skills programmes will be needed to turn the government's vision of a green recovery into reality. And we're very grateful to the City of London Corporation for sponsoring today's event. To help us get a handle on these questions, we have a fantastic panel today. We have Josh Buckland, who's a director at Flink Global and previously worked as an energy advisor to both Greg Clark and Andrea Ledson when they were Secretaries of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And also before that, spent three years in the Prime Minister's Policy Unit. We also have Sam Frankhauser, who's Professor of Climate Change Economics and Policy at the University of Oxford and Director of Oxford Net Zero. He was also a member of the UK's Committee on Climate Change from 2008 to 2016. We have Rosa Hodgkin, who's one of my colleagues from the IFG and works on policymaking, particularly around net zero. And Bridget Rosewell, who's a commissioner for the National Infrastructure Commission, uh, led its projects on northern connectivity and the east-west corridor from Oxford to Cambridge, but has had a wide-ranging career as an economist and policymaker. A few brief housekeeping remarks before we uh, kick off. Please do start sending in your questions via the Q&A function on the right-hand side of your screen. Um, if you see a question that you similar to one you were going to ask, please just upvote it and then we know that that's a, a popular topic. Um, we'll be live tweeting this event from the at IFG events uh, Twitter account and using the hashtag, hashtag IFG net zero. So please do uh, tweet along and follow. Today's event is obviously on the record and a recording of the event will be up on our website within 24 hours if you do miss it or have to drop out at any point. Um, I'm going to start, though, by handing over to Catherine McGuinness, who's chair of the Policy and Resources Committee at the City of London Corporation, for a few opening remarks. So thank you very much for that, Gemma. And from the City of London Corporation, we are very pleased to be partnering with the Institute for Government on today's event. This is a really vital question. How can the government build a green recovery? Vital because climate change is arguably the, the biggest challenge we all face, affecting all of us, every individual, every business, every nation, and uh, consequentially, we all need to do our bit to uh, to try to tackle this. And with COP26 just a matter of months away, uh, now is really the time to turn those green promises into urgent and decisive action. Urgent and decisive, whether we're taking John Kerry's line that COP26 is the world's last best chance to tackle climate change, or for the more domestic reason that actually this is a moment when the eyes of the world are on us in the UK. This is our time to show what we can do to contribute in this really important space. I think it's very appropriate that we're meeting um, and talking uh, in, in London Climate Action uh, Week. And at the City Corporation, we're very clear on the important role that urban centres like the Square Mile has to play. As, as thriving centres of community, culture and commerce, uh, you know, we really have a responsibility uh, with our cities and, with, and in our case with our square mile to protect and promote sustainable and resilient environments. And last year we unveiled our own climate action strategy 
committing ourselves to achieving net zero in the square mile by 2040. It's affecting all our decisions now and our priority making, and our focus in year one is on acting on early opportunities to make tangible progress on those ambitious aims. But we're also undertaking a wide programme of work to mobilise the sector that carries our name, the city, the UK's financial and professional services sector, uh, called after us, but actually a UK wide uh, sector. Um, and we're very fortunate, of course, to be hosting a global uh, sector here. And we know that globally a huge amount of investment is going to be needed to achieve net zero. Uh, I think estimates stand at around one to two trillion dollars annually. So in achieving that, uh, financial and professional services are going to be uh, absolutely key. Just three elements of the work that we're involved with uh, on that front. With COP in mind, um, last month we launched GHS at COP26, a hybrid virtual summit that's going to be hosting, uh, that, that we will be hosting at and alongside COP26 in Glasgow, looking at how to mobilise uh, global finance to support the transition, ensuring that finance is at the heart of discussions and also showcasing the UK as the place to provide innovative green financial solutions. It's been very pleasing to see the interest and enthusiasm from investors. And I've been in my post for four years now, and I've seen this absolutely race up the agenda uh, uh, across the sector, reflecting the uh, concern from investors, corporate and individual. I'm perhaps motivated by the fact that what we do with our investments can have even more impact than what we do in, the, in, our, in, our, uh, you know, in other aspects of our, our daily life. Research that we've carried out has shown increased appetite to deploy capital into ESG investing, and we've also seen a rise in impact investing, including a venture capital level and the emergence of uh, thematic green and sustainability funds in private markets. So do look out for that, GHS at COP26, what we, what we will be doing at COP26 itself uh, to put a focus on this area. Secondly, we're working on a project called Finance for Sustainable Growth that seeks to connect the city's financial expertise and our ability to connect with global capital with the UK region's uh, sustainable innovation. Some of the clusters of businesses that have great projects around the UK but need the capital to fund them. And um, this programme is going to kick off with a virtual launch event in the northeast uh, next week on July the 6th. So I suppose, given that we have partly have a role uh, in local government, that is partly a, 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 you know, a, a public-private uh, initiative to try to connect capital with projects. And finally, just to mention, with the Impact Investing Institute, uh, we're exploring the potential to mobilise greater flows of local government pension scheme investment into place-based impact investing. Uh, with a white paper published last month, uh, which highlighted that assets identified as place-based investments already exist in portfolios of local government pension schemes and can provide stable risk-adjusted returns and low volatility, and showing that there are real opportunities for investors to secure financial returns while addressing place-based inequalities and supporting more inclusive and sustainable development across the UK. But the private sector can't do this alone. Uh, it can't drive transition alone. The public sector has a vital role to play and uh, we need to see public sector organisations working alongside the private sector, uh, not, not actually not least in creating trust and reassurance 
that is needed to encourage uh, more green investment. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion amongst the panel today and looking at uh, 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 how the public and private sector can work together on this and what action we need to see from government. So that's it from me, Gemma, just to say thank you again to uh, IFG for working with us on this and to all these speakers today and hand back to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. Sam, let me start with you on this. You've done a lot of work on this area. What have you made of the government's green recovery package so far? Yeah, it's there's a couple of websites and organisations that uh, that track what individual countries are doing on the recovery. The IMF just tracks fiscal policy. The OECD tracks the greenness of uh, of those policies. If you look at that, you get the impression that the UK has done a lot, and they haven't done too many things that are you know damaging uh, explicitly damaging like they haven't supported the, the high carbon sector in the wider Norwegians have supported the oil industry or some governments have supported the aviation their airlines so we haven't done that uh, but uh, we haven't also not taken we have also not taken the opportunity so in a sense it's it's uh, it's the missed opportunity rather than the damage that we that we have done. Um, if you sort of look at what has happened, um, obviously a lot of money has been spent on on survival, if that's the right word for it, for low schemes, uh, tax breaks, uh, uh, loan uh, you know loan guarantee schemes, and so on. And that that was important just to make sure the the economy survives. Um, but there's a lot of things that could have done uh, that would have uh, you know built the green economy at the same time. I would say if uh, you know, if building back better is a no-brainer, then the brains haven't necessarily been in evidence. Um, again, it's a missed opportunity rather than uh, than having done too many things wrong. But you you opened a committee on climate change report, long list of things one could do. You look at the uh, papers on productivity, the LSE Productivity Commission, uh, long list of things one can do on investing in innovation investing in, in infrastructure. I'm sure Bridget will talk about that. Investing in skills. Um, and a few of these things have, have actually happened uh, so far. Great, thank you very much. Josh, I'll come to you next. You've worked in Bayes and the Treasury. What do you think are the main challenges in designing these sorts of green recovery policies? Thanks, Gemma. Uh, I think, as Sam's kind of alluded to, there is a huge amount of opportunity, but it's not as, as straightforward as it might seem. I think there's there's two key challenges that I would pull out when we talk about delivering a kind of a green recovery. I think the first is that government, at least over the last year, has been driven by kind of any recovery versus specifically green recovery. Clearly, there was a justification for focusing on anything that would drive immediate economic kind of recovery or at least kind of maintenance through the early period, whatever the cost or whatever the challenge. And the initial kind of phase of the recovery from the pandemic was driven by an effort to maintain incomes, invest in vaccines, subsidise kind of transport um, sectors that were losing a great deal of money. Um, and clearly that was the main priority to back up the economy and ensure things didn't fall apart completely. And a lot of those things weren't necessarily green. I agree that we haven't necessarily kind of bailed out certain airlines and things, but ultimately what we haven't done necessarily is drive a very green recovery as a result. It's been driven by circumstance. And um, I think it's easy, it is obviously kind of easy to criticise. I think though, sitting in kind of my experience in the Treasury is that it is very difficult when you're in a crisis situation to think about the long term economic and kind of 
political priorities, even in areas like loan conditionality or kind of green measures, it is quite difficult to think in a sensible position when you've got a high distress scenario. We've seen that in the past through um, investments that bail out the steel sector, for example. It is very difficult to think about other priorities whilst you're dealing with an immediate economic crisis. That is changing, though, and clearly, as we move into a world where COVID is not just here for a short period of time, um, it's a longer-term issue, the idea around that longer-term recovery is where potentially there is more scope um, for uh, a greener element of that recovery, and I'm sure we'll come to that in the course of the conversation today. The other challenge I would just say, and this is specific to the, to the green recovery side, is that there is an inherent tension between what is required to deliver net zero and what is required for immediate kind of economic recovery, which is driven by immediate kind of growth um, focus. Obviously, net zero, as Sam has alluded to, will require a great deal of infrastructure investment, and that helps to drive long-term growth, both productivity as well as obviously kind of economic uh, development of new sectors. Um, and in the green space, obviously, there's a huge amount of opportunity and the government is driving that around carbon capture and storage hydrogen and other things but really that doesn't deliver an immediate economic uh, value it delivers long-term economic opportunity um, and clearly there are some areas of crossover I've mentioned the green homes grant clearly that's an area to try and pump prime the market and drive investment it wasn't necessarily that sustainable um, and therefore that's successful and um, but it does show that clearly there are opportunities to drive the green recovery but they are inherently slightly different from the time frame perspective than what was required in the early stages of the recovery I think, though, as I said, there is then an opportunity. The real game to win on the recovery will be that long-term recovery. What does the kind of post-pandemic world look like from infrastructure investment perspective, tax reform, skills development? Um, and I think that's where actually the opportunities around linking net zero to economic planning and policy are more significant. And that's really, for me, the major focus moving forward. Thanks very much, Josh. Bridget, um, I mean, Josh already touched there on uh, some of the sort of longer term infrastructure needs of net zero, but um, you sit on the National Infrastructure Commission. How do you think the government can make sure that infrastructure investments during the recovery align with those net zero targets and that green recovery policies are implemented effectively? Well, the short answer is if they take our advice. Um, the, the, uh, we produce a national infrastructure assessment. The first one was in 2018, and although we didn't have a net zero target at that point, nonetheless, our recommendations for energy, for example, were absolutely about carbon reduction and moving to, to net zero, um, or at least zero carbon energy generation. And we've had long running campaigns around um, supporting electric vehicle charging uh, networks. We had Charge Up Britain, for example, as one of the things that, that we were pushing. So we're, look, uh, we're actually at the moment starting work on the second national infrastructure assessment. And we're going to look further into uh, power generation in particular, but also distribution. Obviously, had distribution changes with move to solar and wind and so on. And what the challenges are there to make sure that we maximise over the medium to long term. And obviously, net zero, the sooner you make a change, the, the, the bigger the benefit that pulls through. And that's very important. So we've been saying this for some years now, and I think that the policies have moved in our direction. And as Josh says, it does take time to, to get all these settled across all the various departments. Um, one of the aspects actually which supports that, which we've also been working hard on, is supporting devolution. Because in, in, an, in a more devolved situation, towns, cities, regions can pull together both their infrastructure investments and all the other things that are, are taking place alongside it. And that increases 
your efficiency in due course productivity. Um, I'm not sure I know what a green recovery looks like, incidentally. So, you know, what do we mean by green? I think that we can, that's not quite the same as saying we can think about uh, biodiversity net gain. We've done some work around that and we're, we're pushing those sort of the policies which say, and, and DEFRA have already said, that any nationally significant infrastructure project must have a, a net gain aspect to it. So, and we've welcomed that. We've, uh, we're looking more intensively at transport. Like transport is a it is a bit of a conundrum because we don't yet we've done work on freight we don't yet have good uh, zero carbon um, HGV rollout and and the HGVs are generally not designed or made in this country either so you know you need to work internationally uh, is hydrogen the answer can we have lighter weight or more efficient batteries because at the moment the weight of the battery means you can't actually put anything in the lorry so um, we need a different fuel for probably hydrogen will be the answer and we're also doing a lot of work around heat decarbonisation and that is still one of the biggest conundrums but also supports a green recovery so gas is the fuel of choice for 80% of uh, heating installations in this country whether they're domestic or industrial uh, gas is obviously a fossil fuel, so you're trying to stop it and, the, and government have got a policy that no new gas boilers will be sold after 2025. Uh, and indeed bringing forward, again our recommendation, bringing forward ending the sale of um, petrol and diesel uh, cars and vans by 2030, which originally we were trying to pull that forward and, and government have come alongside that. All of those are obviously we welcome. But heat decarbonisation is a really difficult one. Government has a target of 600,000 um, air source heat pumps being installed per a year. Uh, air source heat pumps don't heat to the same temperature as gas boilers. So you need bigger tanks or bigger radiators. It's disruptive. It costs just as much to run, incidentally, as your gas boiler because it's using electricity to, to still to pump. Electricity is more expensive than gas. So we've got there's a pricing challenge here around energy generation, which needs to be met. So um, that's one of the things that we're going to work on quite a bit in the next couple of years. And the one I just wanted to end with a mention of, well, two things actually, we're working on towns and the infrastructure that towns need. Again, integrating that with the other things needed in the, um, in the area. And we'll be thinking about the circular economy. And again, that I think is very much, uh, should be at the heart of what we mean by a green recovery. What are the policies that would maximise the chances of, of incorporating that? And then just final sentence, government cannot do it alone. Government will do what people, generally speaking, we live in a democracy, if people think if, if the populace and the, the naysayers push back too hard, things won't happen. Government can't do it alone, so it is very much up to all of us to push forward with the things that we think need to happen. Thanks very much, Bridget. And finally, Rosa, you've written a paper which is coming out next week. Do you agree with what's been said and what would you recommend that government needs to do? Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that's been said so far. Uh, our paper had six recommendations for government, so I'm not going to go through them all in detail. I think that would be a bit much. Um, but in brief, um, we have recommended that we think it's really important 
that it's clear which department has responsibility for green recovery policies and that everyone is clear about that. Um, we think those departments then need to look really carefully at where specifically green policies align with the economic recovery, because there's quite a lot of evidence that in general green policies can stimulate growth and create jobs, but that's really dependent on local conditions and conditions in specific sectors. So it needs a kind of in-depth look at where that would actually work in the UK. Um, we think policymakers should learn and evaluate the Green Homes Grant and see why it had the issues that it had. Uh, one of the things we think comes out of that is involving local authorities more in the design and implementation of policies. Uh, the other policies that went along with the Green Homes Grant for public sector decarbonisation and social housing retrofits seem to have been more successful because they were more linked into existing local delivery networks. Um, we also think the government needs a plan for green skills. Green recovery policies can only create jobs if there are people with the right skills waiting for those jobs at the right time. Um, and particularly with the COVID pandemic, if you've been made redundant from an airline, you're not necessarily going to easily transition into a retrofitting job. Um, so we think that's a really important area to look at. Um, and finally, we think because obviously this isn't just going to be government and most of the investment is going to have to come from the private sector, green recovery policies need to be aligned with a plan for encouraging investment from the private sector in net zero over the long term. And a lot of that is about clear regulatory signals. So it's important that green recovery policies aren't like a standalone short term thing. They need to be part of a longer term plan for how we deliver net zero. Thanks very much, Rosa. Um, so all of you in, in some ways sort of touched on this distinction between green recovery in the sense of short term demand stimulus policies, really trying to get things going in the economy quickly and the extent to which those can be green versus longer term uh, recovery policies, supply side infrastructure investments that the government may be doing and the extent to which those need to consider green objectives at the same time. Um, I think in the first category, the Green Homes Grant is the obvious policy that was tried and had its problems, which Rosa uh, just outlined. But to what extent do you all think that the there is the government should be thinking about those short term policies and that there's really scope to green those sorts of policies? Or do you think actually the the major win for the government will be thinking much more carefully about those longer term supply side interventions that they're, they're doing at the moment and making sure that those are contributing to the net zero goals? Um, Bridget, let me come to you first. Um, thanks, Gemma. Um, I don't see these as alternatives, actually, because they should be able to build on one another. Uh, and in particular, I mean, Rosa rightly said we need to be say, training people to be able to install SLC heat pumps rather than gas boilers, for example. Uh, and that is something that can happen at very many levels and both in the short and in the long term. So I think the other bit of this is not is, is not being afraid of failure. So a good example, I think, is the um, you remember when you could get 42p a kilowatt hour for installing a solar panel and people rushed to install them and companies rushed to set up to install them and train people to do them and, and so on and so forth. And it was a fantastic success. And then people said, oh, it's a failure. We paid too much money. But actually, if you hadn't put that kind of big push into it, you probably wouldn't have got to the point where we actually have a huge amount of installed solar capacity uh, and are able to use that over the longer term. So 
being willing to experiment, being willing to try things out is that's the short term stuff. So um, experimenting with greenhouse gas removal, for example, another thing that we need to be putting money into the experiments to make sure that uh, all sorts of things can be tried and that we're not trying to get it right. The best is the enemy of the good. So just try stuff, get out there, do it. And out of that, the longer term stuff will then evolve. Josh. Thanks. So I, I agree with the budget. I don't think there's necessarily a kind of dissociation. The thing I would say, though, is that you need to be selective on the sectors that you choose for short term um, stimulus measures. You need them to be mature markets where there is a direct kind of consumer pull already. And that was one of the challenges with the Green Homes Grant. And um, clearly, obviously, energy efficiency is a, is a mature sector. But in truth, uh, there wasn't that consumer pull for investment at that stage, especially given the uncertainty. And there's also other questions around the kind of delivery model and things. But clearly, that was one of the challenges. There is no consumer pull for a lot of things at the moment. EVs is a great example, both on obviously the kind of purchase side, but also on the EV charging side. There are mature markets where actually there is a real opportunity to drive stimulus measures which align with the net zero trajectory that can be done relatively swiftly. It's more challenging when you look at sectors that are less developed. So heat decarbonisation, as Bridget mentioned, very big challenge and um, big strategic issues around kind of infrastructure choice and also consumer kind of demand. And that's where, yes, absolutely, you can have some kind of near term stimulus. But what you need is actually on heat is to build a long term sustainable market. So you need to be thinking about skills development, you think about regulatory signals, you need to be thinking about ultimately consumer subsidies. But really, there isn't that necessarily that consumer pull at this stage until the proposition itself is dealt with the improvement of ongoing costs, as Bridget mentioned, around electricity, other things like that. So I think the real challenge if you're sitting in the Treasury is to say which are the sectors which we can actually try and the term stimulus kind of through which are mature and there are funding kind of routes that could be deployed and what are the others where we need to actually have a more drilled approach which actually delivers a more sustainable market for a net zero perspective and those are the disassociations doesn't mean to say you can't do both you just need to be a bit cautious about your selection next question then you've all talked about various policies that you think the government could pursue if you had to pick one thing that you would most like the government to do or perhaps the one thing that you're most concerned is going to fall by the wayside or be ignored or the missed opportunity at the moment what would you what would you go for sam let me start with you yeah it's um it, it, it's a, it's an interesting one because we need there's no single magic bullet it's it's you know it's it's uh it's the hard slog of tiny detailed um uh, carefully calibrated interventions but uh since you asked, uh, at the moment there's probably rightfully a, a an emphasis on spending because that's good Keynesian recovery uh, stimulus policy. It's also the case that the, that the zero carbon transition is a very capital intensive transition, so it, it makes sense to uh, to worry about the spending and just to open a bracket in in in, in this when. When we talk about spending, we mean capital investment, which isn't the same as economic costs. So the, that idea that all this is prohibitively expensive, that is that's strictly for the wee donkey. What we're talking about is is, is economic costs, not investment costs. Um, anyway, that's the spending side. Um, what I would then say to counterbalance that is we, we also need all the structural regulatory price incentives. We shouldn't forget them. Um, carbon pricing, I'm an economist, so expect me to say that, so I just did. Um, the, the UK carbon pricing landscape is, 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 is a bit fragmented, uneven, and I think Bridget mentioned one example. Um, heat pumps are expensive because electricity is expensive, but that is only because the, 
you know, the policy uh, landscape makes it so that there's a huge uh, disparity policy-wise between electricity prices and gas prices, and that's the sort of thing that you that you can fix uh, through through pricing policies. And then finally, going back to what Rosa said, skills. Uh, we we do need to do something about skills. There are estimates that say it's about three million people, about ten percent of the workforce in the UK will need some sort of retraining, reskilling, um, you know, still the same job. You're still an architect, you're still a construction worker, uh, but you need new skills. Another three million, incidentally, will have increased demand for their skills, all the electricians and so on. But their skills is something we tend to forget. Thank you. Rosa, what would be your pick? Yeah, it's difficult because it is trying to do all of them at once. You can't just do one thing. But I think if I had to pick, I would go for EV charging infrastructure because I think that's a major blocker to demand for electric vehicles as concerns about getting stuck on the motorway without being able to charge your car. Um, and we know how to put it in place. It just needs to actually happen. So I think that's what I'd go for. And Bridget. Um, well, just to add, I think the thing, one because uh, one of the things I'm worried might get is being neglected is managing the reinvestment in the distribution network for electricity. And one particular example is bringing power back on shore. At the moment, that is still fragmented. So you're getting planning applications being put forward for connectors here, connectors there, connectors somewhere else, all on nice little, nice little villages by the, by the, on the coast. And uh, this is not popular. So we need to sort that out to bring it all back into Bigger, a bigger connector, carefully select the location, you know, otherwise it gets as bad as trying to site a nuclear power station. So I'm worried, everything else everybody said I agree with, but I'm worried that this is an area which is being neglected. So I'll just add that one in. And Josh. Uh, so I, I did just agree with said. I'd say greening the financial system. So the, the, the one cross-cutting opportunity is to say, ultimately, everyone knows we're not going to be able to fund net zero through public funding alone. Um, I don't say that just as an ex-treasury official, but it is also true. Um, and therefore, we need to mobilise private capital. Clearly, the UK Investment Bank and other things are important. But actually having a good, credible system of climate disclosures, having proper ESG metrics, having robust kind of transparency settings, and also thinking about things like the Green Taxonomy Framework, those yeah. things are vital and they drive investment across the entire economy, irrespective of sectors. So that's the one thing which, especially with government hosting COP in, uh, COP in November, um, could be actually really transformational and build into investment in EVs and other things, as we talked about more generally. Let me pick up on that um, point then um, about the need for, for government to try and encourage private investment into this space. Um, it, it, I guess the, the big government policy on incentivising investment has been the super deduction of corporation tax um, that's going to be in place for the next couple of years. That's not explicitly green. Um, what more do you each think the government needs to do on this? Um, Rosa already talked about the need to have um, clear plans for the future so people know that they're putting their money in the right places. Um, I, I guess, Josh, you were just talking about um, ESG metrics. Is this something where does the government need to get involved in this and where can the private sector experiment on its own, rely on the sort of push from uh, individuals wanting their money to go towards more green enterprises um, and just the private sector getting there on its own? Where, where's the gap for government here? Um, Josh, perhaps I'll come to you first on this. 
Yeah, so just the, obviously the green finance piece is, is part of that, but I won't repeat what I said. I think two other things, I'd say regulatory reform. So Bridget, you kind of alluded to this, ensuring that each economic regulator has a very clear mandate to drive net zero investment. Ultimately, the amount that can be mobilised in distribution networks, transmission networks, other things like hydrogen networks in the future will all be driven by that regulated aspect. And we're looking now at more regulated kind of financial models in areas like CCS. That feels to me like a really important piece and is obviously something government signals in their national infrastructure strategy in response to Bridget's hard work on the on the NSC side. On on the third element, I would just say would be um, kind of how you drive more investment through kind of joint public-private. So obviously the UK Investment Bank is now being looked at and kind of developed in a green sense. That's really critical to get right to ensure that that is investing in the right places, not just mature markets like offshore wind. You don't need any more public investment in those mature markets. What you need is joint public-private investment in areas that are more novel. Hydrogen is a good example, but there's countless others. Um, and actually, that's where you could kind of see a nice, neat kind of fix, which ultimately drives investment signals in the right direction. Sam, oh, Bridget, I'll come to you in a second. Yeah, two things I would add to what's already been said. Uh, one is a sort of a net zero test to all policy interventions that you do, and that will get this back to the, you know, is the regulation net zero compatible? Is the price incentive net zero compatible? Um, because it is, again, that's sort of the sum total of those small incentives that will do it. So that's that's number one. Number two is sort of credible planning. We sort of, there are a lot of sort of long-term government planning uh, plans in the making, and we, we need them, and we need them to be credible, and we need them to be adhered to, because uh, the Climate Change Act is a wonderful thing. But when we asked investors a couple of years back, would you invest against the Climate Change Act with all its statutory budgets and targets. They said, no, we invest against policies. We don't invest against targets. So we need that long-term credibility that, that will drive investment. Bridget. Yeah, I think that the, the way that this comes together on the financial side is, is around timeframes, because the payback on some of the investments that we'll need to make to get net zero to happen are beyond the timeframes that private sector entities will normally invest in. And what government can do is, is bridge that gap in two ways. Firstly, by providing that those long-term financial tools. And I think, um, I'm hoping, and I've challenged in the city on this, um, that the city as well is thinking about how it can provide investment mechanisms for with low long-term paybacks. But there still may be gaps that only government can fill. Where are they? How are they? And the investment bank, as Josh mentioned, is one of the really important things that can help to leverage that. It doesn't have much money. It's only got 15 billion, um, some equity and some guarantees. Actually, in the scale of infrastructure investments, I think, um, was it Catherine said trillions? So it's how it can leverage that, both by filling some of those gaps, but also crucially in providing some of the backup analysis that is otherwise hard to do upfront for investment entities. So I think that's where this public-private sort of um, leverage can sit most effectively. And the policy change, some of the policy changes will then emerge from what you do with those, with that analysis and those investments. Rosa, do you have anything to add on this? Um, yeah, I agree with all of that. I think the only thing that hasn't been mentioned that came up in our research was pension funds. So making it easier for pension funds to invest in green markets and technologies was something that came up as potentially a way to unlock 
some private investment. Um, and it's been suggested that other countries have done that better than we have at the moment. So I think that could be one area for the government to look at. Great. Um, Sam, you particularly highlighted the fact that uh, actually the, the UK government in its sort of rescue package during COVID hasn't disproportionately um, bailed out sort of carbon intensive sectors in the way that some other um, countries have with their airlines and their um, fossil fuel industries. But might there be a risk as we come out the other side of COVID if some of those sectors, particularly, I suppose, international travel sector might be the one that would be uh, the obvious candidate, continue to lag uh, the rest of the economy, continue to struggle to get back on its feet? Um, and as the government starts to withdraw economy wide policies, do you think there might be a pressure for them to keep that kind of support and we do end up then propping up um, sectors that are in a way that's inconsistent with our net zero ambitions. Is that a risk? Um, how would you encourage the government to tackle that quite difficult political question? Um, Sam, that was come to you first. Yeah, it's clearly is a risk and it's clearly very difficult politically. I mean, that's where sort of the balance between just looking at Keynesian expenditure and the broader policy package comes in. Um, you do want to put the regulation and the pricing incentives in place to uh, to sort of not lock in a high carbon recovery, but incentivize a low carbon recovery. Um, and that you know it, it is quite hard on on airlines that uh, you sort of impose two shocks one after the other. But uh, it is it is also the second shock in a sense is is well trained, um, well communicated, long term. Uh, goes with the, the speed at which capital is being replaced. So if you, if you do it proactively and communicate it proactively and put the sort of the regulatory um, safeguards in place, then 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 I think it, it, it can happen. Just one sort of COVID-related worry. Um, so I think one of the worries is that people are going off public transport. Um, so it isn't just that we come back and do the same thing as we did before, which is bad enough. It might also be that certain habits that we developed over a long time, we, we go off on and we need, we need the, the, the counter incentives for that as well. George, you've obviously spent a fair amount of time advising ministers and within government. What sort of conversations do you think they'll be having and what would you be advising if you're facing this challenge? Yeah, so I think I kind of we talked about it a little bit earlier. There's definitely a, sh a short term conversation that has now happened, which is crisis orientated, very difficult to attach things like conditionality and climate related commitments to that. I know that some countries have done a bit of it, but it's relatively soft and it's usually in, in economies that are largely more state run companies. The real opportunity is, as Sam has described, what's the long term trade? So the big thing that COVID has shown is that companies do rely on state intervention and support in extreme circumstances. That slightly changes the balance between public and private to say, well, we've got long-term objectives that we need to deal with together. We support you through this process. There is a kind of a moral justification, I suppose, for their businesses coming together and acting, but that needs to be done in a long-term way. Take aviation, you can't suddenly start kind of taxing it to the hill given the financial situation and in addition there isn't a no carbon alternative which is justifiably kind of input based now and there are real big kind of transformational technologies there's shorter term ones around sustainable aviation fuels what you need is a long-term agreement with the sector which says okay this is what we're going to do in the next 10 to 15 years in exchange for support and that's how it's going to then transition around innovation cash obligations on kind of uh, development and other things um, and there's a really interesting piece for me as well the government will definitely be doing which is as part of that big trade between the public and private sector 
what happens with industrial capacity and manufacturing and ultimately the UK supply chain, because that actually becomes more a conversation in the event that there is a bit of a quid pro quo around ongoing support. And that's a potentially really interesting area as we started to see in the EV space um, with some recent announcements from some of the car companies. It's a really interesting and kind of unique opportunity for the Treasury, especially to slightly reset that relationship, but also then drive that long-term economic productivity opportunity that links into the net zero agenda as well. Great, thank you. Bridget or Rosa, do you want to come in on that one? Yeah, because I think that um, I'm glad Josh mentioned manufacturing because I think supply chains and freight and goods is one of the big challenges. This isn't the aviation is not just about moving people. Um, and indeed, shipping is another big challenge in this, which is another a big greenhouse gas producer, not quite on the same, not as intense, but nonetheless still there. Um, so what happens to supply chains? What happens to manufacturing and how you're going to make sure that the goods come in as well or, or go out in particular, as well as people and services and, and how government can think about the evolution of trade is one of the things that I think is it's a, it's tricky. It's tricky. It's just, it's a real challenge. I think I don't think we know how supply chains are really going to respond to what happened under COVID, um, and as well as the zero carbon thing. But I, my my guess, and it is a guess, is we're going to enter an area of deglobalization, shortening supply chains, making more local, uh, less people travel, but still stuff moving around. And uh, just as a sort of final point on that, the port in the UK with the highest value of exports is Heathrow. And that is stuff, high value exports, which go out in the bellies of passenger planes. So there's a, also a, a link there which we must not forget. So this is going to be very tricky and we will have to allow space for some of this stuff to um, to be worked on and evolve rather than, as, as I think Josh said, you know, we can't hit some of these industries over the head with a big hammer because we'll damage the whole of the economy. Great, thank you. Um, we've had a lot of questions coming in from the audience, so I'll go to some of those now. Um, first question uh, who, from an anonymous questioner um, says that uh, Retrofitting buildings is going to be a big part of this um, and suggesting that perhaps there ought to be more of a preference for repurposing existing buildings rather than knocking down and building again because building houses is itself uh, not very green compliant. Um, so the question is how should government support retrofit and encourage use of existing buildings rather than building a new? Um, Rosa, let me come to you first. Yeah, I think that that well, I mean, you're going to have to do both. So you're going to have to make sure that new house building is consistent with net zero aims, but the majority of it is going to be retrofitting. We have one of the oldest housing stocks in Europe and all of that is going to have to be retrofitted. Um, in terms of how you support that, I think part of the problem that needs to be worked out is how you support individual homeowners to pay for those costs, because at the moment they're very expensive. Like Bridget said, heat pumps don't put out as much heat at the moment because of policy decisions about the cost of gas versus electricity. The, it doesn't necessarily give you any savings. So most homeowners are not going to be able to put up 20 grand to retrofit their house anytime soon. Um, so I think it's probably about government, targeted government support now to build the supply chains so that the costs come down and then it can be rolled out more broadly once it's got to a level that is affordable 
for ordinary people. Sam, do you think there are any other policies here? I mean, I suppose one thing people might point to is the current VAT treatment of new builds versus retrofitting. Are there other policies like that that discourage people from repurposing, re retrofitting rather than building a new? Yeah, I, I was going to mention the VAT treatment, but Rosa summarised it really very well. So the only the only thing I would add is is, is the new builds. Um, you know, zero carbon homes is the is the low hanging fruit, and at the moment we are sort of increasing the stock of buildings that need to be retrofitted by building bad new ones. So in a sense, we're uh, we increasing the stock rather than reducing the stock. The, the other thing that we're going to need to look at is building regulations. So building regulations at the moment, it's very difficult to do much in the way of effective refurb without a load of extra cost. And not all of it is really apparent to me why it's necessary. Uh, so there's a, a massive um, pressure to do things in the most the, the most risk averse way, rather than thinking about the balance between circular economy, refurb, reuse, recycle, upcycle. Uh, and so we need to think about the detail of regulation and standards, building standards actually play a huge and, and underestimated role in all of this. And just, uh, just on, on on my side, I think the the my view is you can't retrofit someone's home they have to decide to retrofit it themselves that is the key kind of difference that we need to kind of i guess narrative wise we need to get right but also critically on the policy side what that means is you need good customer propositions so you need people who are innovating and offering stuff that people actually want to do to their home and buy and also that the financing schemes are in place because actually a lot of customers are never going to be in a position where they can fork out an upfront cost but ultimately they will be able to finance it over time look at cars hardly anyone buys cars up front anymore ultimately buy them on financing deals so there is a real opportunity i think to think about how you can present those customer propositions and there's great companies already kind of thinking about that in a lot of ways on the energy side but also the broader financial and tax system government needs to mobilize green mortgages, mortgages it needs to think about tax exemptions and support more holistically than simply just how do we specifically deal with upfront investment in the, in the heating side i think that's the thing which is maybe potentially transformational and it needs to be something that the customers and the householder themselves want to actually do and they see a benefit from which is really about generating value so an uplift in the housing the value of their home kind of a better heating experience, a better lifestyle value from using their EV flexibly to kind of um, uh, charge stuff in the rest of their home. There's loads of stuff you could do and that's the way we need to think about it. The next question comes from Marcus Clissol Lesser, who says that lockdown seems to have encouraged some people to move away from large cities. Do you all think this is positive or negative from an environmental point of view? Uh, Bridget, let me come to you first. Well, that's very appropriate because I've done it. <laughs> I moved away from from the city. Um, I'm now in Lincolnshire, um, I, and clearly it has happened to a certain extent. But I think it's probably fairly minor at the end of the day. Uh, the people who really want to move away most probably can't, and they're the people living in these you know appallingly small flats that we've been building. So we need to look at the quality of the of, of places that people are able to live in. But I think that cities will remain very attractive places. Uh, the, the COVID shadow will fade. Um, people will for, A, forget and B, feel safer than you know, vaccination rollout. And COVID will become like flu, something, you know, it, it'll happen and there'll be hot spots and, and we'll probably be more conscious of that and indeed of flu in, in coming years. But I think that the, I don't think there's going to be a major exodus. 
and apart from anything else, it'll be too hard to get planning application in the little villages that anybody might want to move to. So, you know, it's not going to happen, is it? So, I mean, specifically for you at the National Infrastructure Commission, are you, have you rethought what the infrastructure priorities are for the UK in light of COVID or is, is this, is your view that... So what we've done... When we, because we did a piece of work last autumn on rail needs for the North and the Midlands, and we took there the view, we came to the conclusion cities were going to remain important and important drivers of activity. We've also done a piece of work on scenarios for behaviour change on particularly, and that certainly shows that transport is the most likely to be affected and, you know, the, the fear of public transport. But essentially that we do not know. So we'll continue to run scenarios. My feeling is there'll be less less change actually at the end of the day than people people thought you know the number of people who are now saying oh they want more flexibility in their working lives they don't want to be in the office every day but actually they do want to see people and they do want to go out and they do want to get to see people and when they are in the office they want to be in the office when everybody else is in the office too some viability challenges there for public transport um so i think there's a lot of evolution that's going to happen here before we get to to know so no, in the short answer, we're not saying we know what the change in infrastructure priorities should be, but then we've never pinned any on any particular scenario. So my way of thinking about this is to say, what are the infrastructure investments that I'm pretty sure we need? I am sure we need under any scenario I can imagine more broadband. Good example of that. What are the investments that I think we need under almost all scenarios that I can imagine? And EVs and EV charging is one of those. After all, you know, somebody could come along with a completely different way of, of, of having private vehicles. But do I think private vehicles are going to disappear? No. Um, the most likely thing is that they will be fueled by with batteries and therefore EV charging is is an almost no brainer. Um, and then what are the things where I don't quite know how that's going to pan out? Hydrogen economy would be one of those. Um, and we and I, I would want to hedge bets around those sorts of uh, those sorts of investments because we don't know how things will evolve. Sam, you touched on this point earlier in your sort of fear about people not returning to public transport. Um, what, what's your take on whether these sort of changes in behaviour and where people live, what impacts they're likely to have on the ability to green? Yeah, it's probably too early to tell and uh, like Bridget, I, I think in the end there will be hopefully second order um, it, it swings and roundabouts, uh, you know, sort of living more in the in in, in the in the countryside um, is, is is probably good for the sort of the balance of the of the country and the economy, as it were. But it is and that's a global point now, rather than the UK one. It's striking that the the global narrative of decarbonisation has 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 always been uh, focused on the cities of tomorrow and how we construct the cities of tomorrow make sure we have more Barcelonas and fewer Atlantas, as it were, you know, sort of the compact uh, cities where you, where you can walk to, to places. Um, and we are slightly undoing that because of the fear of, uh, because of the fear of, uh, of, of public transport. Um, so that there is a, sort of a, a bit of a tension there, but I, I suspect it will be short-lived. The statistic that says globally, we're gonna double uh, the number of people living in cities over the next 40 years. Uh, by implication, we have to build every city that currently exists, sort of all the Londons, Mexico cities, Mumbai, Shanghai's. We have to build them all again over the next 40 years. I think that story still holds. 
And maybe on to the next question then, Michael Pickin has um, sent in a question about uh, differences that there might be between the way the UK government is approaching green recovery uh, and how the devolved administrations are approaching it and perhaps the differences in priorities between the two. Um, I suppose question to all of you, to what extent does it matter if different parts of the country have different priorities around the green recovery, how we get to net zero, and to what extent do we need coordination across the entire nation on these things? Um, Rosa, I'll start with you. Um, I think it probably depends on different areas. So like in terms of the energy grid, like Bridget was talking about, you need the energy to cross borders in an effective way. So that those kinds of areas might need to be joined up. In other areas, I it, it's important that things are locally specific and that they make sense in local areas. And in a sense, it doesn't necessarily matter if that town is in Scotland or in England, if as long as the green recovery policies are make sense in that specific place. So I think I would potentially put more emphasis on making sure that wherever they were, policies made sense in the in a local geographic context rather than necessarily thinking about the devolved nations. Bridget, what's your take on this? Um, I'm a great pro pro proponent of devolution. So there are aspects, obviously, which we need to try and do on a UK basis. And, uh, and Rosa mentioned energy networks. That's an obvious, one obvious one. But even with energy, there's lots of, of um, more localism happening even with energy networks or the changing balance between between the, the natural, the national bit and, and the local bit. and and we've had quite a lot of conversation during this panel session around consumers and, and citizens and how they engage and and hold they will engage much more effectively at a local level than thinking that they can affect anything that's happening at a, at a national level so the role of local government not just devolved nations but local government i think is incredibly important it's under invested in and if there is one other sort of change i suppose that we might support it's making sure that local government has has the resources, they've been squeezed so hard, and then they're asked to compete for loads and loads of different funds, and they spend most of their time filling in forms for different pots of money in different departments. We need to sort out the financial arrangements for local government and give them the confidence and the resources that they can, and they will, I think, have effective green policies for themselves. Josh. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think coordination on energy is actually especially important between the kind of devolved nations and obviously on the on the local side, um, because there is national frameworks that are always going to be national. I don't think you're ever going to get into a world in which you're subsidising multi-billion pound offshore wind farms kind of in a certain kind of uh, area of the country and not others. Um, they're going to be national subsidy systems that have to be coordinated. So the coordination between the devolved nations is absolutely vital. But what that needs to be is not just a kind of Westminster centric kind of this is our subsidy framework you've got to respond what there needs to be is an element of learning from others so Scotland are doing an amazing amount of work on energy efficiency and heat which actually the England and Wales can learn a great deal from um, and quid pro quo is that they need to be coordinating their subsidy frameworks with what the devolved administration is doing on things like leasing so I actually think that it's an area where we need to ensure there is a proper framework for coordination that works effectively and that needs to then obviously go down to local authority level especially on the on the England side where there is a bit more of a kind of patchwork of devolution in different areas and potentially leading to different owners um, and therefore not really driving accountability so that's where the coordination challenge is most principal. Right. 
Um, next question is, is <laughs> more of a clarification one. Um, David Black asks, or he's confused about whether the panel is for or against air source heat pumps as a replacement for gas boilers. Um, <laughs> uh, Rosa, do you want to um, take the uh, job of clarifying what I think you're all saying on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I don't want to speak for anyone else on the panel, but I think in general, there is a reasonable level of agreement that air source heat pumps seem like the most obvious replacement for gas boilers. I think what we were saying is that at the moment, there's a slightly difficult consumer proposition because you don't have the same thing of really warm radiators, which we've all got used to, and you have to pay to refit your home. And it has to also have energy efficiency retrofits because it doesn't, you can't just put a heat air source heat pump into an old house and expect it to work as efficiently. It needs to also be energy efficient. So it's a lot of upfront cost. And because more there's more regulatory cost on electricity than gas at the moment, you're not making energy savings. But that's a policy problem to be solved rather than an issue of the technology, I would say. I don't know if anyone has that. So, so I would add, I think air source heat pumps are a good solution for many houses and, and other buildings, but they, they're not the only one. So ground source, for example, district ground source uh, in particular, uh, some companies ro try rolling that out and working with local authorities to do it for estates, for example, where that can actually be more effective because you can actually get a more stable temperature than you can with, with air source heat pumps. So ground source is still an option, but not for individual properties because you need too much ground. Uh, and equally, I think we may end up with, at least for larger installations, having hydrogen if we can produce the hydrogen. So that's a bit of an unknown. So air source is certainly the obvious choice at present. Whether it will continue to be the obvious choice in 10 years time, I'm less clear. But then your average boiler is redundant in 10 years time anyway. So in 10 years time, you may end up doing something different, I think. There's, there's st I've still got uncertainty about heat decarbonisation. Thanks, Richard. Uh, next question then comes from Simon Webb, who says the government's net zero plan seems to be held up in a debate between economists and public finance controllers. How might this be creatively resolved? Um, Sam, let me come to you on this one because you sort of touched on this in your remarks. Yeah, probably because I'm the resident economist. Um, <laughs> it's. Uh, let me, a couple of things. I mean, economists have been part of the problem for a long time. Let me let me put it that way. That's sort of academic economists as well as, as treasury economists. If you sort of look at the history of uh, of, of the, the climate change debate, they, they they haven't always been on the side of the on, of the angels. Uh, they have sort of found reasons to make it difficult. Um, but I think the treasury in particular. Um, has changed, hasn't changed enough, uh, but the, the fact that they do a net zero review, the fact that you can now go to the treasury and you find a team there of people who are as eloquent as the people on this panel on net zero, I mean, that's, that's a huge step in the right direction. I mean, so just building that capacity and that knowledge uh, has been hugely important. Um, obviously, the treasury will then, and the economists will, will look at the, the challenge from a public finance point of view, and they have problems that you and I might not have had. I mean, if you talk to the, the Treasury, one of the things they worry most about is the disappearance of fuel duty 
a sort of a 28 billion worth of revenue that they will no longer have. Um, so that they bring a sort of an extra angle to it, uh, which we need. We, you know, we will need the 28 billion. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's changing. The Treasury is sort of slowly uh, uh, starting to understand what needs to be done. But yeah, they're not yet sort of the, the cheerleader of the, of the net zero that they probably should be. Josh, what do you think about this? I, I, I agree. I, 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 the, the, the Treasury team on this is substantially bigger than when I was in it, um, which is which which is great. And there is a lot more people thinking a lot more deeply about the issues both on the tax and spend side, as well as kind of broader kind of economic issues over the long term. I think I think they are getting it, but it will take time. And what it takes is a is a more holistic view of the tax and kind of uh, fiscal environment from a net zero perspective, which is not just a narrow kind of which technology do we subsidise. It's how is the tax framework as a whole driving the right environmental outcomes, how is the right kind of economic modelling process, and they start to talk about environmental net gain and other things, driving the right kind of decisions on the broader framework. I think those things are critical. The other thing to remember is it's not just the Treasury, it's also the Bank of England, it's also the FCA, it's the kind of broader auspices around um, the Treasury um, that matter as much, because ultimately you want to re reorientate the system. And the thing which has really changed to drive the Treasury into a better position is that the financial sector are now coming to those in government and saying, we want want to invest in this stuff and we also worried about our risk base on the climate side that's the thing that's fundamentally changed and that's the thing that potentially the treasury as well as those other entities can harness over the next couple of years to really kind of sort that uh, problem which was probably right uh, at least when i was there rosa what, what has your work said about how you balance off these longer term gains against the short-term public finance needs yeah i think that obviously is going to be a problem because you've got public services that have been put under a huge amount of pressure by the COVID pandemic. There's going to be a lot of competing demands on public spending um, and those are going to have to be balanced and that is difficult. I think the only thing I would say is it, it only gets more expensive the longer you leave it. So investment now brings efficiency gains further down the line. If you put a lot of money into high carbon infrastructure during the recovery period, it's just going to have to be retrofitted if you're going to hit your net zero goals. So I think the mindset needs to be that this is an investment in avoiding future costs as much as spending now. And Bridget, we are now over our time, so I'll give you the, the final word on this and any last thoughts you'd like to add. So I think it's about that, again, the short term, long term, what's an investment and what's just spending, but also where are the sources of tax revenue that you might be able to think about in the future. We will end up taxing electric vehicles, for example, because if it moves, you can tax it. Um, uh, and so we will. So I'm not so worried about working that out. And indeed, I've already done some work on all of that. I think it's it comes back to what people think is important. And I think what's really impressive and empowering is that so many people now are really trying to do something about this and we need to harness that. That's my sort of final thought. Wonderful. Thank you. That's a very positive note um, to end all of this on. 
Thank you, Bridget, Sam, Josh and Rosa for joining me for today's discussion. It's been fascinating and thank you all for viewing this. Thank you also to City of London Corporation for your support and sponsorship of this event. Um, our next IFG event uh, is happening tomorrow at lunchtime when Andy Haldane will be reflecting on his time as Bank of England Chief Economist on his last day in the job. So please do join us for that. It should be an interesting discussion at 12 o'clock tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.